Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with their mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Good morning, a very warm welcome to Fullwood. Adrian, thank you for reading for us, and well done for finding our reading from Micah chapter 2. We are in a series between now and Christmas looking at this minor prophet Micah, but with a major message. We saw last week that he speaks to the people of God in the 8th century BC, in a time of prosperity, but just before judgment is coming, the Assyrians from the north are about to attack, and Micah is speaking God's word to God's people, explaining to them why judgment is coming. And um, we're seeing in the series how relevant this word is for our world today. Um, you'll find, on the, I hope in the bundle you received, a, a handout which will help you, I think, to know where we're going in the next few moments. Certainly, having the Bible open will be a great help. Page 931 of the Pew Bibles, if you've closed it. And let me pray as we look back together at God's Word. Father, we do pray this morning that you'd help us to understand and believe those words we've just been singing. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more, and we pray this for your glory 
and for our salvation. Amen. Steve Jobs, who was in many ways the creative genius behind the success of Apple over the last couple of decades, he had an uncanny ability to put his finger on what made our culture tick. I think that's probably why he was so good at designing technology, which we all wanted to use. Anyway, at at one point um, before he died, back in 2005, he gave a, a, a now famous speech to a graduating class at Stanford University, and uh, he said this in his speech, you'll see it on the handout, and I quote, don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice, and most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. It's a brilliant summary of the heartbeat of our culture. It sounds like such an attractive message. Be true to yourself. Go with whatever direction your heart tells you to go. And that is the right way to live. And let no one tell you you are wrong. Sounds very attractive. It's how many, many people in our world today live. But there is a dark side to the Steve Jobs way of living. For for starters, how do we know that our own hearts will be the best thing for us? How can we trust ourselves? But also, when we flick on the news this week and see that someone else's heart has led them to decide the best course of action is to drive a hired van down a cycle path in New York, killing eight people. The Steve Jobs world has no right to tell that person that they're wrong because they're just following their hearts. Or what if someone in a position of power decides that they really quite want to sexually abuse someone else beneath them in the hierarchy? That is what their heart tells them is the right thing to do. How dare we in the Steve Jobs world tell them that they are wrong? There is a brokenness in our culture today because in one breath, we want the right to do whatever our hearts tell us to do and have no one judge us. But in the second breath, we want to have evil and wickedness and other people's lives judged and condemned as being wicked and evil. And we live in a a frustrated and broken world. We do long for a better world where goodness and rightness is upheld, where there is genuine freedom to live as we should live and yet where evil is judged, and those who do evil are condemned as such. We long for a better world, and Micah 2 this morning will show us how this world is possible, the world we long for. You see, in Micah 2, the people of Micah's day, even back in the 8th century BC, had adopted the Steve Jobs approach to life. Everyone was doing just what their hearts wanted them to do, and no one was allowed to tell them that they were wrong. At the same time, terrible evil was being committed in the nation. And this morning we see God's response. He does the one thing our culture says you must not do. The one true God speaks a word of judgment on the actions and the hearts of the people. And I think the purpose of Micah 2 is to convince us of the goodness, the rightness of God's judgment. 
Micah is speaking about a future moment when the Assyrians come and judge Israel, but it's a picture of the final judgment when Christ returns to this world. And he wants us this morning to be utterly convinced that the only way for this world to be put right is through the good and right judgment of the one true God. And so this morning, as Micah 2 unfolds, we see how and why God judges. And you'll see in the handout first, God's judgment is proportional. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. I guess many of us have had that experience of lying awake at night. We can't sleep and our mind is whirling with the plans for the next day. Maybe it's a shopping list or a big meeting coming up and we're trying to juggle how we're going to play it. And then when the alarm clock goes off, we jump out of bed and we try as best we can to carry out the plan we had at night. And the same thing was happening in Micah 2 verse 1, but this time the plans are evil. They're lying awake at night plotting how they can take and grab and steal Why? Well, verse 1, simply because they can. Verse 2 tells us what they were doing. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. In the days before supermarkets and freezers, a man's land was his life. His crops, the animals on his field, they were his life if Those were taken from him. He couldn't feed himself or his family. He was destitute, lacking dignity and purpose in life. And what is more, his inheritance from the Lord was his land. For his land to be stolen was for God's inheritance to be taken from him. And it seems that these land barons of verse 1 were going around, seizing and grabbing other people's lands. And their motto was, I can and I want and so I will. Imagine a widow who struggles to pay the bills. There's a few warning letters in the post, a phone call from the lawyer, and then the boys have arrived to drag her away to seize possession of her home, and she's out on the street with nothing. That's the picture of verse 2. Oh, it's all official. It's all technically legal. Papers were obtained. Due process was followed. But we'll find later on in Micah that the leaders and lawyers of the land were in on it. They were were being bribed by the land barons. They were happy to sign the paperwork and turn a blind eye. And in that culture, the widow had no chance out on the street. I couldn't help but think of the allegations being made against the disgraced film producer Harvey Weinstein. Now, I want to be very careful because allegation is not the same as proof. And we must let justice run its course. But as you start to read and hear about the kinds of allegations being made against this man, we see a man being betrayed who had lots of power. He was a film producer who who was the gatekeeper for various roles in the next film. So if you're a budding young actress who wanted to make a break and make your name big in the next film, Harvey was the man you had to get past. He had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. And the allegations describe a man who coveted, who saw and wanted and took because it was within his power to do so. Very much the same attitude we see being worked out in verses one and two amongst the people of God. 
And of course, if the allegations prove true, and we must let justice run its course, of course, if they are true, we do long for justice. And that's the right reaction as we read Micah 2. Look at verse 3. Therefore, the Lord says. You see, the Lord sees the evil going on amongst the people. And unlike the corrupt leadership, he will act. And Micah is at pains to show us that God's judgment is proportional. Verse 3 continues. The Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people. It's the same language as verse one. Just as the evil men planned their disastrous activities, so now the Lord, verse three, plans disaster against these men. Remember the arrogance of verse one, but now, verse three, you will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. Well, then verse four. In that day, men will ridicule you, They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possessions is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns it our fields to traitors. In verse two, the land barons grabbed land from others. But then now, verse four, their land will be grabbed from the land barons. And just as their victims used to cry out for help, so a day is coming when the land barons will be taunted with that very song. The point is very clear. God's judgment is proportional. And verse five talks about a day in the future when there'll be a redistribution of the land, but the land barons won't be there. They won't receive their inheritance. I don't think the main application for us this morning from these first five verses of Micah is to go out from this morning and start campaigning for land rights and for better property law, although that's always a good thing to do. The main application for us this morning is to understand how and why God will judge. The events of Micah 2, as we've been seeing, is is in the short term, they unfold in the experience of the Assyrians coming down from the north as the agent of God's judgment on the people. It's a picture of how Christ will judge the whole earth when he returns on the final day. And Micah 2 shows us how and why Christ will judge then. And that judgment will be planned, it will be careful, it will be accurate, it will be unstoppable and utterly proportional. There will be no miscarriage of justice. And for those of us who find it hard to stomach the thought of God judging the world, these verses help us to show why it is a good thing for this God to judge the world his way. And also, I must say this morning that if our motto in life is, I can, I want, and therefore I do, with no reference to God, then be very careful, because a day is coming when the Lord will judge proportionally and our arrogance will be brought down and the Steve Job motto of living, simply do whatever your heart tells you to do. It's a very dangerous one with the God of Micah 2. God's judgment is proportional. But next we see God's judgment is countercultural. So far in the book of Micah, Micah's been the one who's been speaking God's word to his people, but now there's a moment for response as other prophets amongst the people 
push back against what Micah is saying. And look what they're saying in verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. (laughs) Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, Micah, be quiet. Stop talking about this judgment. We don't like it. It's not going to happen. That was the response to God's word back in the day of Micah. And it goes on being the response to God's word through every generation. People do not want to hear the news of God's judgment. Notice in Micah 7, verse um, 7, how uh, the people justify their, their response. You see verse 7? Should it be said, O house of Jacob? The house of Jacob is a, a way of describing God's chosen people, the descendants of Jacob. And it's a very clever argument because it's partly true. God had indeed made wonderful promises to the house of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham. Um, wonderful promise, promises that are eternal, that will come to pass. And so the conclusion um, God will never judge the house of Jacob. Well, it, there's some truth to it. People make the same argument today. They play the, the background card, the, the status card to wriggle out of God's judgment. They might say, not that we're Jewish, but um, we're British. We are respectable. We're from the right part of town. We're kind of, we've had a good heritage. Look at our parents and grandparents, our family tree. We're, we're not those kind of people over there. We're, we're the good kinds. God won't judge us. He'll judge the world, but not us. We're, look at our heritage. And so they try to wriggle out of God's judgment. That's the background argument. There's another argument in verse 7. Is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such thing? It's an argument about God's character. And again, it's very clever because it, it contains truth. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and he is quick to forgive. But the conclusion is wrong that a loving God would never judge sin. But we see the same argument being made today. I remember in my own experience that at one point during my selection process for ordination that I found myself speaking to a senior church leader and they asked me to describe very quickly my understanding of the gospel and I did my best in a sort of faltering, stuttering way to describe in a few moments what I thought the gospel was and as part of my answer, I talked about the reality of our own personal sin and also how our sin is an offense to God, that he will judge our sin. I said other things as well, of course, but I did include that. At the end of my little explanation, the person listening, the church leader, said to me, Pete, I'm very sorry to hear you say it that way. I I hope that you will grow up in your understanding because the God of the Bible, he doesn't judge people. God is a God of love, not judgment. If we ever try to explain the gospel to our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors... We know it's good news, but the news is only good because of the problem and reality of sin and judgment. If you ever try to explain judgment to a friend who's not a Christian, you know it's very hard. And so often the response is, God's not going to judge me. If there is a God, he's a God of love. Don't talk to me about judgment. The reaction back in Micah 2 verse 7 is alive and well today because God's judgment is always countercultural. Well, look at verse 11. 
If a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he will be just the prophet for this people. The people only want to hear good news. They want to live in the moment, laughing and drinking, deadening their brains to to any big questions of life. The wine and beer, verse 11, may be a reference to the blessing of God that comes to his promised people, if they loved him, as they should. And the people say, just tell us everything is fine, that the future is rosy. Don't tell us about anything serious or scary. Isn't this still the case today? Many people today believe that if there is a God, that he is simply there to make life better, happier, and more prosperous. If I want a pay rise or a parking space or a new relationship or better health, I don't mind hearing that there is a God who can give me these things, but don't talk to me about a God who judges sin. That's not the God for me. And sadly, the very people who should have been speaking the truth about God's judgment, the prophets, were simply at the bar ordering more rounds for the people. And sadly, it happens today. The very church leaders in this country who should be warning the people of God's judgment are just ordering more drinks for the people. I remember being at a training day not not long ago with, with other church leaders, and at one point we were discussing pastoral care for people in our parishes, and one church leader described how he'd went at one point to visit a parishioner and They enjoyed an alcoholic drink together. One drink became two, became three, became many. And he described staggering home after the pastoral visit, joking about what a success it had been. And if that wasn't bad enough, around my little table, everyone else was rolling around laughing at the thought of that happening. Think of the the TV series, Father Ted. I know it's been around a while, but one of the main characters in that series is an alcoholic priest. Why is that character cast in a comedy show? It's funny because it's true. There are far too many church leaders today who are simply at the bar, literally ordering more rounds for the people. And if not literally, they are spiritually just spreading around a message of fun and cheer and living in the moment with no reference to the big things of life or the coming judgments that God's people are facing. I don't mind telling you that I find this series in Micah hard to preach. Not least because I know that as I speak about the reality of God's judgment, there will be some in this room who are upset at what I am saying from God's word. It is much easier to stand at the bar ordering more drinks than it is to stand in the pulpit and preach about God's judgment. But back in Micah 2, What kind of God turns a blind eye to muggers who attack innocent people on the road? That's verse eight. Or who ignores the plight of women who are driven from their homes and left destitute? That's verse nine. Not the God of the Bible. And so Micah's response is to the the objection of God's judgment is very clear, verse 10. He goes on preaching about judgment. He says, verse 10, get up, go away. For this is not your resting place because it is defiled, it is ruins beyond all remedy. This is the right way to respond, to continue to preach the truth about judgment even when every voice in the room is telling us to be quiet. 
a number of you were asking me very helpfully after last week's sermon on Micah 1, how we can actually go about speaking to our friends and family and neighbors about the reality of God's judgment. It is a hard message to communicate. And you're asking, well, how can I do it in practice? Because when it comes to it, you know, when you're on the street having a chat with your neighbor and there's, well, there's a five-minute moment in, at work and they're asking you, oh, why are you a Christian? And to kind of talk about judgment, it, it, there's never the right moment. It just never feels the right time to say it. It's just such a strong thing to say. How do we do it? Well, I think Micah 2 helps us. Certainly, we should do our best to explain the reasonableness of God's judgment, as Micah has done in chapter 2. But at the end of the day, we need to accept that God's judgment has always been countercultural in every generation. There is never the right moment. We live in a Steve Jobs world where we are not allowed to tell other people that what they are doing is wrong. And so like Micah, we must be prepared to go against the grain of our culture because of the reality of God's judgment. Well, as we seek to do so, and it's a hard role to play, the final two verses of Micah chapter two will help us greatly. Here's our final point. God's judgment brings salvation for his people. Look at verse 12. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob, I will surely bring together the remnants of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. Remember in Micah's day, the judgment of God took the form of the Assyrian army marching down from the north and that moment in history did come to pass. The people of Israel were indeed invaded. They were scattered in the face of this mighty army across the the, the whole area. But verse 12 describes a day in the future after this judgment, a day when the scattering is undone and the people are gathered back together again. Not all the people notice verse 12, only a remnant of the people. You see, not all of Jacob, just some of Jacob. And for those who are gathered, what a day it will be. The scene is one of sheep being gathered together in a pasture. And this is one of the ways the Bible describes a world put right. It's how the Bible describes one of our great longings that in the future somehow we like sheep will be gathered into a place of utter and ultimate security where we are looked after by a perfect shepherd, not a corrupt leader. It is a place where we are fed and nourished eternally, where no threat can break down the walls that are around us. It's a picture of the world we all want. It's a metaphor for salvation. And the promise is, verse 12, that there is a day coming when the Lord himself will be our great shepherd, gathering the scattered flock together into that wonderful place of security. How is this world possible? Verse 13 tells us. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gates and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. You see, there is a day coming when a breaker will break through the wall and will open up the gates that the people might pass through. I think in verse 13, the the, the gate is judgment. The, The barrier facing God's people. A day is coming when the breaker, the great one, will smash away through the threat facing God's people. And it is the king who will do it, the Lord himself. 
And of course, as we look through the Bible, we long for one who would come who would be both shepherd and king, the protector and breaker down of walls. And as we share bread and wine in just a moment, we remember that, of course, we have just a shepherd king, the Lord Jesus, who cares for his flock as the perfect shepherd and as our great king died in our place, taking God's judgment onto himself that we may never have to fear God's judgment ourselves. As we break bread and wine this morning, let's do so remembering that the Lord has allowed his judgment to fall on his son, Jesus Christ, that it it may never fall on us. And for those who cling on to the shepherd king who died for us, there is a way through judgment into a world that we long for, a world of peace and safety, a world of life and fulfillment. But as we close, that world does not come to us the Steve Jobs way. No, it comes through God's judgment of the world and it comes to those who cling on to the great shepherd king, the breaker down of walls and the rescuer of his people. Let's pray. Father, we have seen this morning, again, the sin of the world and the sin of our hearts. And we also thank you this morning for news of your wonderful mercy, that there is salvation beyond judgment, that there is a way through your coming judgment. Father, please help us to believe that your judgment is good and necessary, but also that your salvation is just what we need to bring us through judgment into the world that we long for. In Jesus' name, amen.